Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. A breathtaking and unprecedented journey from the remote mountainous jungles and floating cities of the Cambodian countryside to the bustling garment factories of modern Phnom Penh. A river changes course, traces a devastating and beautiful story of an ancient culture ravaged by globalization. We're joined today by the director of A River Changes Course, Kalyani Kalani, pardon me, uh, Mom, the director of A River Changes Course, which will be playing at the uh, Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. It'll be screening on Saturday, a week from tomorrow, Saturday, May 4th, at the Directors Guild of America. Kalani, wel- welcome to Film School. Oh, thank you, Mike. Nice uh, to meet you. Nice meeting you as well. And um, I really enjoyed your documentary on a number of levels. Um, it's a beautiful film to to look at, um, just on on that uh, basis alone. And it, as in terms of a a look into the the countryside and the life of the Cambodian people. Uh, and I also loved it for its ability to make the micro macro and vice versa in terms of issues that they're dealing with and the world in some sense is dealing with as well. Tell me a little bit about uh, the genesis of your your journey into back to Cambodia and to, to the making of this documentary. Oh, it's a long journey. Okay. <laughs> um, I was actually um, born in Cambodia mm-hmm. um, during the Khmer Rouge regime. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that period, um, but it was a period of um, very traumatic, um, shocking genocide, mm-hmm. um, very horrific mm-hmm. um, period for Cambodia. We're, we're, we're Cambodia talking about the, the I'm sorry, yeah, we're the talking Cameroon about the Pol Pot regime, era, right? Um, oh, nearly two million people were killed yeah. during that time, mm-hmm. and my parents and my family and I lived through that period, and I was actually born during that period, if you can imagine someone <laughs> even being able to be born during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we f- finally fled um, Cambodia in 1979, and we trekked through the jungle and arrived at the refugee camps at the Thai-Cambodian border. Mm-hmm. And we lived there for about a year and a half, two years, before we finally immigrated to the United States. Um, and in the United States, um, it-, it was... Uh, I guess, you know, a growth process. You know, I've always grown up um, torn, you know, between my Cambodian past Mm -hmm. and my Cambodian tradition and culture, and then torn between my American side, you know, and I was very uncertain about where I belong. You know, when you're young, you kind of, you you don't really feel like you belong anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you kind of think that you need to um, belong in a certain space. You know, you're either Cambodian or American, but really nothing in between. Mm And so um, I always grew up bewildered about my own identity, um, but also very curious about my Cambodian identity, um, because my parents, you know, constantly shared stories with us about our Cambodian culture, our history, you know, our country, and I just had this fascination about my um, Cambodian side. And so my first opportunity to explore that side was 17 years after we arrived in the United States. And during the summer of my junior year at Yale, I um, went back to my country 
and it was incredible. Um, I was describing it to someone the other day that, you know, I, would, I flew over um, the country, and this was my first time, you know, back in the country with any recollection, any memory. And, um, you know, as I was flying over Pochintong Airport, which is the airport in the capital city of something, I saw, you know, rice fields and palm trees, you know, and mm-hmm. glittering water in the rice paddies. Mm-hmm. I, I was overwhelmed. I had never seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. And so that first summer was the first summer that I fell in love, you know, with Cambodia and fell in love with my, you know, Cambodian side and actually, knew, you know, was able to discover and explore that side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the first time that I went back to Cambodia, but it wasn't the last. You know, I continued to travel back and forth, um, working with the Documentation Center of Cambodia, working on um, a paper called Crimes Committed Against Women During the Khmer Rouge Regime, mm-hmm. you know, so doing all kinds of research related to the Khmer Rouge period. But over the years, I realized that, you know, the country was changing dramatically, and I realized that, you know, a lot of our attention was being focused on the Khmer Rouge period, you know, focused on this past, focused on this genocide. But I realized that there were atrocities that are happening in Cambodia right now that also need to be documented. And so in 2008, you know, that was the most significant change that I'd ever seen in the country. You know, there were like skyscrapers, you know, that were being built in the city. You know, a lot of the forests had been cut down. All the forests that I had seen previously you know, in the northeastern part of Cambodia, was completely cut down and now filled with sugar plantations and rubber plantations. And it just really shocked me, you know, how much the country had changed. And I wondered, you know, what kind of impact, you know, that was having on people's lives, you know, and on the environment, you know, in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And from so from from that first trip back, you came back as the United States, uh, continue to per- pursue. It looks like you continue to pursue your career. Uh, uh, you, you went to UCLA Law School, became um, yes. a legal consultant yes. in Mozambique and Iraq, and that led you, it sounds like it led you to uh, a documentary about the um, Iraqi refugee situation. Tell me, a, tell me you, how you became a filmmaker. Um, is that, is that, am I tracking that correctly? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it's a very kind of a windy story as well. My life is full, full of windy paths. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I, I worked in uh, Mozambique as a legal consultant with the Ministry of Labor. And then um, after two years, I went to Iraq, and I worked there with the Ministry of, Ministry of Justice as a legal consultant on commercial law reform. And um, it was there that, um, you know, I really came in touch with Iraqis. I'd never met an Iraqi person in my life. And it was really my goal at that time. You know, I mean, you remember in 2006, you know, we were in the midst of the war. And I felt like that was the most important thing that was happening, you know, in our country at that moment. And there was really no way for me not to be involved in that mm-hmm. and not to try to find out what was happening. And so I went to Iraq, and there I met, you know, so many wonderful and amazing, beautiful people some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life were Iraqis. And they became very good friends of mine. You know, they were my colleagues. We worked together, but, you know, we became very close. And while I was there, I actually um, interviewed them. 
and uh, my partner sent me a USB microphone that I plugged into my computer, and I started interviewing them and asking them questions about their lives, you know, before, during, and after, you know, the occupation. And, you know, during the Saddam Hussein um, regime and, um, you know, during after the sanctions, you know, how that impacted their lives. And the things that I discovered was just shocking to me. You know, I had never heard anything like that on mm-hmm. the news before. Mm-hmm. You know, no one had ever, you know, written about this. And so when I left Iraq, um, I decided, you know, I needed to put this, these interviews together and, and do something with it. And my partner and I talked about it, and, and we thought, you know what, instead of even just doing a radio interview, a, a radio documentary, maybe we should just make a documentary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that was a really That's, huge leap, because yeah. neither of us had any experience, you know, making a documentary. I mean, I had never held a camera in my life. And David, he had done musical scores, you know, for um, for other films before, but, you know, he's never held a video camera either, so it was a huge leap for both of us. Um, and But, you know, at that time, it's just it's amazing how, you know, a, your passion can really um, uh, take over, you know. I, I just felt that that was the most important thing that I could do at that moment. And it really didn't matter to me, you know, whether or not I had the technical skills to do it. <laughs> you know, and I guess there was just no fear at that moment. I yeah. think maybe if I thought about it enough, maybe I would have been, you know, like, no way. <laughs> How can I even imagine that I'm able to do something like this? Well, well, but, this, um, yeah. I mean, this passion, I mean, I, I realize, I mean, I understand that because you, it is the doors open with when you when you have this sense of yourself uh, without really, you're right, it's it's good that you didn't sit down and think too much about this because given as what I know of the situation in Iraq at that time between the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Kurds and the sectarian violence yeah. and, the, and the, just the general mayhem and the, the scores that were being settled in a mix of all of this stuff and it would it it really was or I'm sure it was uh, fraught with all sorts of uh, of danger and um, travails for you and, and your film crew. Was it just you and David, or yeah, just David and I, and um, we we actually did not go to um, Iraq. Mm. Um, well, originally, we just went to um, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, right, and right. to the neighboring countries where the Iraqi refugees had fled to. How many? There were and actually to... the first time um, I went. You know, this is a crazy story. So we, you know, we had no money, nothing, and we had no contacts except our family and our friends. And so um, we sent out emails to our family and friends asking them if they would support us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we put a website together. We Neither of us knew how to even make a website, but we did it. And then we asked our family and friends to support us. And then we held a, an auction of photographs that had taken in Mozambique and, and, and abroad. And um, with the proceeds from the auction, which was $5,000, um, actually, sorry, four thousand two hundred dollars. Wow! <laughs> we we bought a video camera, and then uh, with my frequent flyer miles, I flew to Jordan, and I lived with an, with an Iraqi family that I knew. And from then on, you know, it just the the the, the project just grew, and we got connected with people, you know, from all over, and it just um, there was so much support, you know, for us. Wow. That, that's amazing, and I know just from my 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 own memory is 
there were something on the order of uh, a million, at least a million, closer to two million refugees in these scattered throughout the the region, and uh, this is kind of the collateral yeah. damage that we never hear about here in the United States. Exactly. About, about exactly. The, what that would no, happen? There are still a lot of people working on these issues. Well, um, well and now we have the Syrian situation. Now we have Syria, which is also scattering people yes. throughout the region. Yes. Uh, uh, Jordan. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really, you know, I don't know how we can ever learn from anything that we do. You know, when David and I were sitting in Damascus, you know, we were sitting, you know, just having a coffee, and we looked around us, and we were in the old city. We looked around us, and we said to ourselves, you know, oh, my God, it would be so crazy if something like, you know, what happened in Baghdad happened here. You know, because all of our, you know, friends, you know, that lived in Baghdad, they would tell us how beautiful Baghdad is and how amazing it is, and they've never been in such an incredible city before. And so we thought, wow, what is something like this? You know, like what happened in Iraq happened to Syria. And Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the world. Yeah. You know, if something yeah. like that would happen, it would be so devastating. And then look where we are now. Yeah. You know, this is yeah. it's really shocking to me. Well, let's talk. Let's go back. <laughs> we'll remind our listeners we're speaking with uh, Kalyani. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm sorry, Kalyani, uh, Mom. Yes, I'm, I've Kalyani got that right. I, I was practicing, I swear to you, and now I'm on the air and I'm sort of fumbling in here. But anyway, Kalyani, um, Mom, and the director of A River Changes Course, it'll be screening at the um, Asian, the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. Um, uh, your screening, the film will be screening a week from tomorrow. That'll be May 4th at the Directors Guild of America, and the screening is at 12.15. Um, any other screenings at the festival, or is this the the one that's the one screening yes and are we looking at uh, theatrical vod uh, kind of uh, releases coming up or uh, river yes, changes yes. Uh-huh. Okay. terrific terrific now let's talk about the film uh we uh you so you traveled back um to this beautiful country of cambodia your native uh land uh to document uh a very specific Place, uh, tell us a little bit about how that happened and, and the decision to, to move forward on, on that. Yeah, so um, when I decided to, to make this documentary about, you know, what was happening in Cambodia, you know, the, all the devastation and the forest being cut down and the overfishing, you know, that was happening in Cambodia, um, it, that was in 2008, you know, October 2008. And actually the first family that I came upon um, you know, when I made that decision, I decided, you know, we're going to go and maybe even find one family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we went to one of the floating villages in, um, in um, around the area of the Belay Sam. And, um, you know, we found this, you know, floating village that was filled with um, Muslim people. Mm-hmm. And it's not very common that people know that there are Muslim people in Cambodia, but there are actually 200,000 Jam Muslims in Cambodia. And they're very specific um, practice Islam. Um, they practice uh, an Islam that is very similar to the one that is in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And um, this village is filled with people who fish for a living. Mm-hmm. And there I found Sidi, the young boy in the film that you saw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was really taken by him the first time I saw him. Mm-hmm. You know, completely fell in love with him. He, you know, <laughs> when I met him, you know, he immediately drew me to him and said, oh, you know, Ming, Ming, auntie, auntie, you know, come here. I want to share something with you. And then he took a Quran. We went to the mosque, which is a floating mosque. And he 
took down the Quran, you know, from the the rafters, you know, and and then he held it in his hand and he started reciting from it, you know, basically chanting, you know, from the Quran. And I was mesmerized, and I knew this was the boy I wanted to follow. And then after that, he took us on a boat ride, and we went, you know, we traveled all across the lake, and, you know, he told the stories. He said, you know, like in the film, he said he wanted to show me the uh, hyacinth, water hyacinth blossoms, and I'm a sucker for blossoms and flowers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I said, yes, please take us. We never found the blossoms, but he told us, you know, incredible stories about his life and about his family, you know, and about their situation and how difficult, you know, it was for them to struggle through um, their days because it was very difficult for them to find fish anymore. And so I didn't, you know, I told him, you know, what we were thinking of doing. um, And I I said, you know, we're going to start filming maybe in January, you know, 2009. And he got so excited, you know, that I would come back. But I ended up having to work on inside job mm-hmm. oh, as yes. a cinematographer, yes. yeah, and an associate producer there, and so I couldn't start filming actually until inside job was premiered at Cannes. But I flew directly from Cannes to Cambodia. Wow! <laughs> and I started, you know, on my project, and that was in 2010, June of 2010. That was when I found Staff Simone and her family in the remote jungles of the northeastern part of Cambodia. And that was another trek. You know, we, I, 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 don't, I don't like to depend on other people to find, you know, you know, like some people get fixers and stuff, and I just didn't want to do that. You know, we, we spent weeks scouring through the jungles and, you know, talking to village chiefs and asking them if they knew a family that fit, you know, this certain description that I was looking for. And um, they were so, you know, very helpful. And we went to the deepest part of the jungle. And then finally, this one village chief, you know, he said, oh, I have the perfect family for you, but you have to come with me. Mm-hmm. And he took us on this, on a motorcycle. <laughs> and then we got on a boat. We crossed a river. And then we climbed nine mountains oh to get to the place where this family was. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so it was quite a journey. I was... A little bit wondering, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's taking on the wild goose chase. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, but when we finally met the family, oh, wow, I was mesmerized. And the, their, their home, their surroundings, it was, you know, filled with jungles and forests. You know, it was still very protected, very remote. Yeah. You know, and I saw the, the watering, um, the pools where they, where they bathed and where they drew water from the spring. And I knew this was a perfect place. And they ended up being, I mean, Sasa Moore, you see her, I mean, she is a dynamite. You know, she is so strong and so, um, you know, so filled with conviction. Well, well, and it was just such a pleasure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, just uh, sort of the logistics of it. Uh, what uh, you you stayed there? How did that work? Did you live with them? Uh, because this sounds like a trek to get where you had to go. Yes. Oh God. Uh, yeah, we had to live with them. Yeah, we. Yeah. I mean, it took us um, at least you know a day and a half to get to where we had to be. Yeah. And so we had to go and stay with them. And but. We can never stay for more than five or six days at a time because it was so challenging. Yeah. Well, you know, living, I mean, if, you, if I was there without a camera and I wasn't filming, I could probably stay there for a month and not, you know, it wouldn't be a problem at all. Right. 
but because I was filming and it was so exhausting, um, we actually had to take a generator with us oh, and bring our own water supply. Right. So we were limited in how long we could stay. Right. Right. And, um, you know, going to the jungle, we had to pack, you know, nine motorcycles with all our equipment. And so um, we you know, only had enough food and water, you know, to last us for five or six days. Yeah, on the lake was a little bit different. We could buy certain things on the lake, um, but still we brought our own water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had our own, you know, electrical supply, too. Mm-hmm. Um, with Kill and Kill, we found, um, or I found her through a friend um, who was, she's now a friend, but she was, I didn't know her very well at that time. And she approached me and asked me if I um you know, could share with her my research paper on crimes committed against women during the Khmer Rouge regime. And I told her, sure, I'm very open. I like to share everything with everyone. And then she said, uh, and then I said, well, in exchange, (laughs) would it be possible for you to introduce me to some families, perhaps, that, you know, work in factories? And she said, oh, I actually know the perfect family for you. And I was, you know, really stunned. I had not even worked very hard to find a family (laughs) yet you know, in the garment factories, and she already knew somebody, which is perfect. Yeah. And she ended up introducing me to a family who, um, and, and Kiel's brother, she's actually dating Kiel's brother, so it was amazing. Wow. Oh. And, um, and so we, we went to Kiel's home, her dormitory, you know, in, in the factories, and I, you know, sat down with her on the floor. We had dinner, and, and all the family was around. She was living with four people, you know, four siblings at the time, in that little tiny hovel, yeah, which yeah. is no bigger than, like, a Manhattan closet. <laughs> I'm sure there's some Manhattan closets much bigger than that, even. <laughs> but it was very small, so tiny. And, um, you know, she started talking, and, you know, she was very uh, expressive. And I knew at that moment, too, that she was the one as well. So all of them I met, you know, just, I, I guess, you know, by co- not coincidence, but it's all circumstance, mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, I just follow my gut on things, my feelings about stuff, mm-hmm. and I always knew, you know, with every single one of them that they were people that I could care about, you know, that I could, you know, spend my days with, my life with, right. basically, right. for well, two you were. years, right. you know, two and a half years. Right. So, um, well. yeah, the, the, the logistics was very hard, you know, but yeah. well, it, it was it, just amazing, yeah, to... to have them open up their hearts and their lives to us like that. Well, it it and it shows in the film. Uh, by the way, we're speaking with uh, Galani Amam, the director of River Changes Course. It'll be screening at the uh, Los Angeles uh, Asian Pacific Film Festival. Um, the, the entire film festival is is a wonderful event, um, and every year uh, one of the one of the great film festivals of uh, of the year, truly. Um, so many good <laughs> filmmakers. Really, it, it is uh, because this is such a a, a, a a burgeoning section of the film community. Is we're seeing many more um, films by Asian Pacific filmmakers, uh, terrific films, including yours. Uh, I want to in the last couple minutes that we have, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the overall issues that you're. I mean, the, the sort of personal, the day to day living that these people. Uh, ha- are dealing with uh, seemingly a, a loss uh, in the river of their of their ability to fish it, as well as the factories that are going in throughout Cambodia. Uh, the, this this film does a wonderful job of 
blending all of these things together in a very personal way so that we can see that the the personal impacts it has on the lives of these people and also um, your journey uh, f- uh, to Sundance. I mean, this won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary World Cinema a- at Sundance. Obviously, a tremendous uh, um, accolade for you. But let's talk a little bit in the time we have remaining about uh, just these big issues. Cambodia, and in, on your website uh, for uh, mm. River Changes course, you, there's a lot of statistical information that I think is important for people to know. But what are the big issues you're, yeah, you're the talking reason, Yeah, the huge issues right now that is happening in Cambodia. And, and they, they were, they were re, the reason, you know, why I decided to work in this documentary. And, uh, you know, like I said before, I think a lot of people, when they think of Cambodia, um, they think of the Khmer Rouge period. You know, yeah. they think of um, the prostitution, the, the issue of sex trafficking in Cambodia. And those are huge issues. And, you know, our past is also very important. If we don't remember our past, um, then we might, you know, repeat it in the future. And actually, you know, we are repeating it right now in Cambodia, you know, because there are atrocities that are happening in Cambodia right now. And, you know, people need to be aware of them, you know. And one of those things are, you know, the cutting down of the trees, you know, the government, the Cambodian government, has been giving land concessions to companies to come and cut down forests, you know, completely, you know, in Cambodia. And there are reserves, there are places, there are forests that are being protected, you know, supposedly by the Cambodian government. But even within those protected areas, land concessions are being given to cut down trees within the protected areas. And so that has to stop. You know, the family that you saw in the film, South Samoan, that lives in the jungle, they belong to an indigenous tribe called Jedi. And that is one of 24 indigenous tribes that exist, indigenous groups, that exist in Cambodia right now. And they all have a very distinct language, you know, very distinct culture, very distinct way of life. And in a few years' time, I could even imagine three or four, maybe even two or three years, you know, they're way of life could be destroyed forever, yeah. you know, and the family that you saw in that film, they may not be living there anymore yeah. Yeah. because of the encroaching, you know, um, cutting down of the forest. You know, you, when I was there, when I was filming her, you know, I could hear the saws going, you know, every day, you know, they're cutting down the forest. And so, um, yeah, there's something has to be done to protect that. And, you know, where city lives, you know, on the lake and on the river, you know, they fish for a living. And, you know, the fish are dwindling. The population is dwindling every year. You know, know, so these father told me that, you know, even five, ten years ago, they could go out into the lake, into the river, and they would put their nets in, and then they would draw out tons of fish. And there would be fish around them jumping up, you know, everywhere. Mm -hmm. They said even during the Khmer Rouge regime time, you know, they would go out into the lake, and there were, you know, fish jumping everywhere. So... There is definitely a scarcity of fish now, and that's because of, you know, the overfishing. Mm-hmm. Um, also because of fishing concessions that are given by the government, right. you know, to large fishing companies to come mm-hmm. and fish in the river and the lakes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, people fish out of season. They fish when they're not supposed to be fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a moratorium that, you know, placed on fishing or the, during the times when the fish are spawning. And so people aren't supposed to be fishing at that time, and people still do. And um, there's also a lot of illegal fishing, like dynamite fishing. Right. 
and the use of, you know, small, tiny nets that catch, you know, every fish in sight. And so all of those things are affecting, you know, the fish population. And there's an additional thing that's, that's, that's been, you know, that has come to um, light, you know, in the last few years, and that is, you know, the, the building of a hydroelectric dam. Right. And, you know, upstream, you know, in China, they've been building dams for years now, but now they, the Cambodian government is contemplating building dams, you know, right along the Mekong River, yeah. you know, along the tributaries of the Mekong yeah. in Cambodia, and that will have a devastating impact on the fish population, yeah. you know, because the fish, they depend on the flow of the water, you know, to spawn yeah. Yeah. during the spawning season, and if their spawning is disrupted, you know, it can really affect their you know, ability to mm-hmm. populate. Well, um, and so there's a lot of yeah different issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I've just completely run out of time. I, I I would love to spend the hour because this is a I I find this very <laughs> it is an interesting subject. Uh, the film itself uh, is beautiful to look at. Uh, you're also the cinematographer on it. Um, the film is A River Changes Course. A screening at the um, Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival next a week from Saturday, May fourth at twelve fifteen at the Directors Guild. Uh, lots of a uh, hundred and three shorts, uh, many feature films uh, be screening uh, throughout West Hollywood, uh, Koreatown, and in Long Beach as well. I want to thank you so much for being a part of Film School. I look forward. Uh, truly, you have quite a film pedigree already, and uh, you're brief career. I'm looking forward to, to your work in the future. I hope you can find some time to come back and talk Thanks, more. Mike. And can I make an announcement on a, on a sure. screening that's coming up Sure. in the Bay Area? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the, there's a San Francisco International Film Festival and the film will actually be making its Bay Area premiere tomorrow Okay. Um, at the Sundance Kabuki Cinema. Very good. And, um, and also we'll be screening on Monday as well as May 5th. So okay. if anybody's in the Bay Area, they can catch it here as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we are streaming throughout the world here mm-hmm. at KUCI, and and, I'll, and this will be posted uh, today. So hopefully people will pick up on the on the um, iTunes and, and all that. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, the film A River Changes Course, uh, Kalani Mom, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mike. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.